Welcome to the Hatching Leaders Podcast, episode 10, and this one gets real weird real quick. We're going to talk about cancer, but we're going to talk about things that are like beyond just cancer, that you can't not have cancer at work, that that impacts and affects everything that you do. And so with that, we need to talk about the heavy stuff in life, not put it on a shelf, not compartmentalize it, but to get really heavy. And I promise you, this is a weird and rad episode. Buckle up, my friends. testicles. <laughs> Probably not what you were expecting me to say, but we're going to talk about testicles for a little while. Oh, what a weird transition that this is going to be. <laughs> testicles is what we're talking about. Uh, one of my favorite team members, one of my favorite people in this world, his name's Jim. Uh, Jim used to have two testicles. And one day Jim had a doctor's appointment and uh, I shot him a text message afterwards because we were supposed to have a one-on-one. I'm like, Jim, uh, you coming? Uh, I I know you had your doctor's appointment. Are you still catching our one-on-one? He's like, no, I'm not. I need to go home. Um, I said, do you want to talk about it? He said, no, not right now. So I gave him 30 minutes. I felt like that was sufficient enough. I gave Jim 30 minutes of time and then I called him. I'm like, dude, what'd you find out at your doctor's appointment? He said, well, there's a tumor on my right testicle. And we made a couple jokes because that's what I think Jim and I do as a, a good friend is uh, we made a couple ball jokes and then we really got serious. And Jim is my age. Uh, I just turned 40 uh, and Jim, Jim was freaked out. I was freaked out. Like this was like, holy cow. One of my key people, one of my favorite people has a big old tumor on his testy. Like it was heavy. Now what happens usually is when somebody has cancer, literal, figurative, whatever it may be, they don't talk about it. If you're having problems with your spouse, I don't know if you talk about it. If you're battling infertility and my wife and I battled infertility for like five years, we didn't really talk about it. If you're dealing with depression if your kid has run amok, if you are lonely as can be, if you literally have cancer, if you just lost a loved one, I think our working worlds are built so that we don't talk about it. That's unacceptable, I think. I think the best kind of work environments are curated to celebrate brokenness and to talk about it. We talked about Jim's testicles. He announced to the team that following Monday at our team meeting about his balls. I just want you to imagine standing in front of your peers, your friends, your coworkers, and to talk about your private of privates and to talk about the private issues that are going on with your privates. Now that's, that's complicated and that's, that's super hard. And yet Jim was this man of courage. Courage is owning your cancer encourages owning your mess and not hiding it because it was wrecking Jim's world and he he couldn't hold it in. I saw at almost the same time, another one of our team members go through a pretty difficult divorce. My heart went out to this person and this person stayed quiet. They didn't rely on the person to the left or to the right of them in our, in our ecosystem. uh, And they wanted to battle it on their own. 
We saw this person hurting. We wanted to help and they wouldn't let us in. Jim let us in and and the diagnosis was this, that he had to have his testicle removed. They were going to remove the tumor and the right testicle. Old righty is what Jim calls it. (laughs) Again, I've said testicles more now in the last four minutes than I expected to uh, on this entire podcast, but I'm so glad to be talking about it because Jim, uh, two days before the surgery, uh, had a party thrown for him and we threw a going away ball. I hope you got that joke because it's a really good one. Uh, We had a going away ball for Jim and we invited his friends and family and coworkers. Somebody brought him an inflated balloon with, uh, it was like painted to look like a a hairy beanbag. Like it was just, it was something. Uh, And then Jim had surgery. And then Jim was recovering from surgery and then Jim got an infection and this went on for like six months. Jim's balls and then ball were the topic and the core of every one of his decisions, every one of his ups and every one of his downs. Now, by the grace of God, the tumor was benign. I'm so glad that he's cancer free. He's also five ounces lighter and he was very excited to share that with the world too. But Jim talked about his cancer. He didn't hide it. He didn't uh, brush it under the rug. He talked about it and we created an environment that celebrated that. He knew that he would be stronger by leaning on other people. There's a phrase that we've adopted that says this, is you can't not have cancer at work. It's a double negative and yet it is a positive when you allow those people in your working worlds to actually have cancer, to own cancer, and to talk about cancer. It seems foolish, doesn't it? It seems foolish that we would allow so much personal stuff to infuse into the working world? Or is it super smart? I would beg on the latter that it's super smart because what we're doing is we're allowing people to be seen as their whole selves instead of them putting on a mask and pretending like everything's all right. If somebody can be their authentic self and have bad days and support that, aren't you building a deeper level of trust in your ecosystem? And aren't you getting people to believe in the values of the company instead of loathing and spiting them not allowing you to be your true self? I think that your greatest strength is on the other side of you being courageous enough to proclaim your cancer. Or if you don't have cancer, to create an environment that celebrates brokenness and that lifts up people who are willing to be seen in full. Now, don't get me wrong. There is certainly those overshares of the world where I don't need to know and hear about all your complaints and all your warts and hemorrhoids and all those other things. Like, I get it. You can sometimes keep that stuff close to your chest. I'm I'm talking about the big stuff here, about that life-shattering stuff where everything is different, where your entire perspective and lens has changed. That's when we need to really curate that environment. Now, One of my favorite things to do is to speak. I love it. Uh, I'm one of those weirdos that loves a microphone in my hand. And I remember my first paid speaking gig. I was 22 years old and I was a senior in college. I got recruited to go and speak at a key club. Key club is the high school division of Kiwanis International. It's a community service organization. I was in it actively in high school as a great way to meet chicks and to do good. Uh, I think I was offensive saying chicks there, but in my high school days, my machismo was having me go uh, look for chicks. And frankly, it was just, 
Uh, I, I had some of my best friends from there and I was very single, so it didn't work out so well. Uh, but I got a speaking gig my senior year in college to speak at the, at the district wide three state, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota rally for high schoolers. And it was in Fargo. And they asked me to come in and be the keynote. And I gave a 30 minute keynote and dudes, I crushed it, like knocked it out of the park. One of my best speaking gigs I've done. I'm like, yeah, I'm the world's best speaker. I've never been paid to be a speaker, but I'm the world's best speaker. I'm 22 years old. I got this all figured out. And one of the gals in small town, Minnesota, uh, almost on the Iowa border, calls me up afterwards and she says, hey, I talked to my high school and they're willing to bring you down. We want you to speak for an hour in front of our entire high school. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just made it. And they're like, we'll pay you $250. I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'll drive five hours to speak for an hour, to drive back five hours, and I'll get paid 250 bucks. That was a lot of money back then for me. And uh, that's terrible pay, by the way. If you're, just, if you're doing the math, that's terrible pay for the amount of time that goes into something like that. But I drove down, and there I was in front of this crowd. And after about four minutes, I realized I screwed up. I was in a terrible place at a terrible time because I was speaking to a whole bunch of people that frankly didn't want to be there. There's of course the diehards. When I spoke at the key club rally at the, at the district convention, those were all kids that were hand raisers that wanted to be there. They opted in. And instead I went acting as though I had the perfect talk to give to all these kids. And I was speaking to, uh, seventh graders to 12th graders, to kids who didn't care, to kids that were passionate. And it was such a wide group that I was speaking to that I was just really set up for failure, hugely, bigly set up for failure. It was, it was tough because I realized that I was going in trying to create a message for everybody that I was trying to one size fits all this for a bunch of kids. In fact, I should have given back that 250 bucks because I sure didn't deserve it. I, I, I failed that school. I failed those kids. I failed that faculty. And in that moment, uh, I realized that I had to do this totally different if I was going to be a speaker, if I was ever going to be a leader, if I was ever going to make a difference in this world. Soon thereafter, I got hired uh, to be a junior high, a middle school youth director. Being a middle school youth director... Uh, uh, that's a tough job. I had about 60 kids per grade and maybe 30% of them wanted to even be at church. And the other 70% were forced to be there by their parents. I recognized that had I approached those middle schoolers the same way I approached that speaking gig in Southern Minnesota, I was going to fail. If I talked at people, if I talked uh, down to them or if I presented, I was never going to win. The only way I was going to win was when I was knee to knee, nose to nose, and I understood their life. I spoke their language. I understood how they ticked. I understood the cancers that were going on in their world, and I understood the chaos that was ensuing in their life. I failed as a speaker, and hopefully I've gotten better as I've grown but I failed as a speaker back when I was 22 and I was convinced I was not going to fail as a youth director. And so I approached it the same way in which I try to approach Jim in our world. I wanted to learn about his cancer. 
I wanted to laugh about it. I wanted to cry about it. I wanted to have tough conversations and I needed to be in a, in, in a close connected relationship with the people that I had the privilege of leading. You see, this one size fits all baloney just doesn't work. This keeping things at a distance thing and not getting in the dirty stuff doesn't work. Our call as leaders and influencers and people who care is to get in the muck and to literally crawl down into the hole with people. There's a difference between apathy, sympathy, and empathy. Apathy on one end of the spectrum says, I don't care. Sympathy says, I feel bad for what you're going through. But empathy has you literally crawl down into the hole to feel what they feel. As a speaker, I failed to do that when I was 22. With Jim, I got to sit by his side and go through his cancer battle with him. I I didn't have cancer, but I wanted Jim to have cancer and I wanted to help carry the load. Because when it feels like it's too much, that's when we're really supposed to step in and help carry. And when I was a youth director, I got to help carry the load for kids and with kids. See, this is, this is about having cancer at work. This is about having that pain and having the courage to let that be the part of the conversation instead of talking about business as per usual. You will get people to show up with more optimism, excitement, and positivity because you don't need it to be positive all the time. Now, I remember uh, in a previous job, somebody talked about an open door policy that they had. And in fact, I hear it all the time. I hear people both like, well, of course they're going to come to me. I have an open door policy. But you have to understand that that open door policy is for the leader to go out and to connect and to learn about the cancers and to learn about the chaos that's going on in people's world. Had I at that school in Southern Minnesota gone out of my way to get there early to learn about what's going on in their ecosystem and then to speak to that, it would have been so much better than a staged planned message. And if you in your working world, whether you were the top or the bottom of the totem pole or anywhere in between, if you want to make a profound impact, you need to take the extra time to listen, to go out of your door and to connect with the people. Learn about the cancers, learn about the celebrations, and everything else. Frankly, this is, this is proactive. It's not reactive. Servant leadership is proactive. And yet, a lot of us live in triage every day, where we're cleaning up the messes of yesterday, and we're wondering why people are performing so poorly, and why they're not showing up the way they're supposed to, is because we don't worry about what's going on in their personal lives. We only tend to the triage time. And we only tend to the mess that's been made instead of figuring out why the mess happened in the first place. What would it look like? What would your world be if you didn't spend your time just in triage, but instead you were proactive instead of reactive and getting involved in the lives of your people? Final thoughts here. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Every time I speak, if it's in front of a large group, I do this new activity because it is the bee's knees. I challenge uh, people. I I say I'm looking for five volunteers. And so I'll find five volunteers from the crowd. And if they don't raise their hand, I will call on them. Uh, So it sucks to make eye contact sometimes because I'm going to call on you. And they'll come up and I'll give them these parameters. I'll say, I'm going to ask that each of you do a plank. A plank is on your elbows or on your hands and in a push-up position. 
And the challenge is, the goal is to get to three minutes of doing a plank. We put that out there to see who's going to do it. And you watch them kind of roll their eyes like, oh crap, am I really going to do this? And a three minute plank is a long time, by the way. And what happens is this, is I set, I set the rules and I say, those of you in the audience, those of you in the crowd, you need to stay quiet the entire time. The only people that are allowed to talk are those that are planking and me. No cheering, no applauding, no encouraging. I just want you guys to watch. And so three, two, one, go, we get in the plank position and I'm talking with them. They're on their hands and knees. I'll put the microphone in their mouths uh, and I'll tell them every 30 or 45 or 60 seconds where they're at on, on the time. And I just watch people struggle. I watch them grunt and I watch them stay in their own pain and I watch them just barely get through it. And not everybody gets to the three minutes, but at three minutes, I say, congrats, you, you made it to the goal. And nine times out of 10, everybody quits had they not quit uh, beforehand. And so the first lesson that we say is, well, why did you quit? We said the goal was three minutes. If you had more to do, why aren't you going farther? So there's lesson number one. Lesson number two is, did you actually go farther because other people were watching? And almost every time they're like, yeah, other people were watching. I knew that I couldn't let them down. And so people go farther. And then I challenged the five. I said, you were struggling and you were quiet. Why weren't you cheering on the person next to you? And almost every time you watch this light bulb go off in their heads, like, oh my gosh, I messed up. I didn't cheer for that person next to me. I was only concerned about my own pain. You see, playing for the person next to you, the title of my book, The Passion in My Heart, is not a natural reaction. Being a servant leader is not a natural thing to do. It is an uncomfortable thing to do that has all the benefits when you do it right. What happens when you cheer for someone else is intrinsically your own pain dissipates. You think less about your struggle when you're there for somebody else. If someone is in it, if they are in the plank, if they are in the cancer, if you're not talking about it and if you're not helping to carry the load, they won't go as far. If someone is in the battle, we need to talk about it. We need to bring light to it. We need to bring tears to it. We need to bring support to it. And when that happens, and when we literally play for the person next to us, more strength is found. Just like when you're cheering for someone else who's doing a plank, you will find more strength than your own because you are giving to somebody else. That's the code that needs to be cracked. This is an uncomfortable one, and yet it is a challenge we need to do every day. So here is my challenge for you to play for the person next to you, to learn about the cancers in someone else's world and help to lighten that load. And you will find more strength for your own journey when you do so. This has been episode 10 of the Hatching Leaders podcast. Oh, we're having fun now. So please go and do good.